Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and today I am talking with Dan Boylan. Dan has tremendous experience working across the Muslim world and in Southeast Asia. He was part of the John Rendon team who worked out of the US Pentagon, where he was an advisor to many in the military. He also worked for the multinational forces in Iraq, the Media Operations Center during the final days of Abu Musab al-Zakawi. And he was also involved with the trial of Saddam Hussein. In Afghanistan, he also worked for the country's interior ministry and specifically focused on counter-narcotics. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Luke. It's a real pleasure to be joining you today. The obvious question is, what do you make of Afghanistan? Everybody else is having a say. And I think it's important to remember that the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on uh, Washington and New York is just a couple of weeks away. That's right, Luke. Uh, you know, Afghanistan is a, is a country that you and I both spent time in. I remember thinking about, you know, you're bringing up 20 years ago. I remember on the morning of September 11th, I was in Queens, New York City. It was about seven miles from ground zero. And the first tower was, was hit a little past nine. You, I recall, were in Hong Kong at that I, time? No, I was in Phnom Penh, although my head office was in Hong Kong at the time. Okay, you were in Phnom Penh. Yep. Uh, you were working with Agency France Press. I was about to leave New York City for Jakarta on a Fulbright, leaving September 13th. And I was there in Queens, and you called me or I called you, I don't recall which. I was in my bathroom in Queens when I took the call, and it was between the towers, and you said that this was bin Laden. This was Osama bin Laden, head of al-Qaeda. He was behind it. I do and remember. I, yeah. I had CNN on at that point. I was also working with the South China Morning Post at the time, filing coverage, various things. It turned into September 11th coverage right then and there. And I was drifting around to Fox. I had BBC on. Nobody at that point in the media was calling Osama bin Laden as the perpetrator. As And you had mentioned that between the planes as I was there in New York City. It was a quick call and... The second plane then hit, and I think we talked later on in the day. We can get to that a little bit later on. But it was one of those things that I don't know how many of, of the listeners of your podcast realize your background in Afghanistan wow. uh, when you were there in 98, 99, and you were the only Western correspondent based there during that entire time. It was a different world, that's for sure. It was a different world. What did you think when the towers came down and you realized that Osama bin Laden was responsible in the al-Qaeda network. Well, it was interesting because I think that, you know, you and I, who'd lived together in Hong Kong, you went off to Afghanistan and and ran AFP's bureau there. I, when I left Hong Kong, this is about 1998, I went to New York City and I worked with the Associated Press at their headquarters in New York on their international desk, which meant I was editing the copy that the Associated Press had coming in from Afghanistan and we, as was mentioned here, the Associated Press had no permanent correspondent based in Kabul. BBC, no permanent. Yeah, pretty much everyone uh, had vacated by then. Yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a news wasteland uh, other than you and some Afghan, some courageous, you were very courageous and some very courageous Afghan correspondents, local correspondents who were able to get copy to various people to get it on out of there. So I had been watching Afghanistan as a news editor on the international desk at the AP and understood that it was complete and utter chaos. And you being one of my best mates also, um, we'd caught up in 2000 at the Millennial. That's right. And you had yeah. some harrowing stories. Yeah. And some even more which harrowing were, photos. Which we're, which we're not sharing now, I might add. <laughs> 
Right, right. Um, but the photos were were things of can I say it? Hands hanging from from wires. Yeah, right? sure. The Taliban were big on executions, they were big on lopping the hands off thieves, and the only court they had to go to was uh, a Sharia court, and it was always loaded against the uh, defendant. And that's kind of where I think this conversation is like, you know, what did you think when the towers went down? I mean, you know, it's really amazing that, that within a year, there were estimates that it only cost al-Qaeda something like 350000 U.S. dollars to pull off this thing. That yeah, ended it was a up hell of a end. stunt. Did spend on Afghanistan over the last 20 years? Well, that, that was my next trillion. question. That was my next question, is that, uh, you know, the Americans have spent between $2.5 and $3 trillion, $88 billion was spent on the Afghan military uh, over the past 18, 19 years. Were you surprised that they folded so quickly in the last couple of weeks? No, not at all. And I, I often get myself in trouble in Washington, D.C. for having opinions that run that run very counter to, to what colleagues at the Pentagon or at the White House or at the branches of Congress. They tend to be very firm believers in their own opinions. I tend to realize that opinions are like, like everybody's got one. Sure. And an opinion that I used to bring around in Washington was that, you know, I used to say to people that I knew who could talk on high levels that Osama bin Laden was essentially the Pablo Picasso of terrorism, right? <laughs> All people last century had tried terrorism out. And I think it was Stalin who had this quote that I used to work some with, with the U.S. military, which was that the point of terrorism was to terrorize. Indeed. And that, yeah, great, great quote. I mean, awful. Terrorism is awful. All kinds of people tried this, but this guy completely captured the imagination of the world. You know, the big giants of the West poked America in the eye, and America recoiled and, in a sense, overreacted, right? Mm. Uh, and that's where I think, like, he was, an, he was an illusionist who created this sense of instability, and there was instability. There was an urgency to go after al-Qaeda around the world, because al-Qaeda... We can go back in time and remember they were very, very nasty, evil characters blowing up a lot of... People shouldn't forget their affiliates. Like in Southeast Asia, there was Jemmy's Lamia, there was the Abu mm -hmm. Sayyaf, who are really more like a bunch of thugs than a terrorist network, but they've been very active over the years in uh, the southern Philippines, and there were great tie-ups between these organisations around the planet and uh, with Al-Qaeda basically taking the lead. Right. And if you think about, you know, the ensuing years after 9-11 and you had big massive bombings in Madrid, mm -hmm. uh, Bali bombing, you yep. and I were both in the Sari Club. That's right. Um, just a few weeks before it actually, you know, more than 200 people died in that one. Yeah, if I remember um, right, we did we did my 40th birthday at the Sari Club a couple of weeks before they blew it up in um, October 2002. Right. These were very nasty people and they needed to be put in their place and they needed to be tracked down, monitored and curbed because they were, you know, it was a chaos unit. I think well, the tragedy is... of Afghanistan is, right. is that the country got completely mixed in with that. And this is something that people who, who understand the country know that I'll tell a quick, simple story right now. Mm. I remember once when I was up in Maza Sharif in 2005, flying up to north from Kabul to this very stable part of the country. They had a big giant mosque that we did some work at up there. And I bought a carpet, a small carpet. This carpet had this kind of folk explanation of what happened. Someone had stitched the towers being knocked down, mm -hmm. and then it had... It stitched the two planes going in, the names of the flights. It had also stitched the Afghan flag and then the American flag. 
And then down the bottom in the letters, half the letters were written in the wrong direction. You could tell this was a very authentic real rug. It said, the terrorists were here. <laughs> and I remember looking at that rug and I bought it and thinking, some old man or lady or someone whoever stitched this thing is, is an Afghan. And maybe they're a, a Pashtun or a Hazara or Afghans don't even have much sense of Afghanistan. They've got sense of their own tribes. Sure, the Tajiks, they, the Turks, the Uzbeks, yeah. the Pashtu, Hazaras. And I thought this person probably thought, man, we got used by somebody as a base. Mm -hmm. We got used and the Americans tried to come in and use us. And I think when you talk to normal Afghans, they're just they're exhausted and used to being used. And, the, you know, now I think they probably think, well, hopefully the Taliban will help us a bit. And they, they thought that 25 years ago when the Talibs first rolled in and they were, everybody was proved very wrong because they were not a helpful force. Right? No, they weren't. And uh, the one thing that can be said for the American and Western efforts in Afghanistan over the last 20 years is that they rescued Afghanistan from being a uh, failed state, which right. leads us to where and what will happen next and where will Afghanistan go. And now that the Americans are out, the Taliban have shattered the agreement they struck with the former president, Donald Trump, and the future is not terribly bright. Yeah, it certainly isn't. And, you know, I, I think that an issue that's immediate is that good countries emerge from great leaders. Mm -hmm. And you need leaders to bring a country out of chaos and normalize things. And unfortunately, over the last 20 years, as much of an effort was made by the West to bring Afghanistan up, uh, lots of domestic leadership there, lots of the leaders there ended up being very corrupt. And I don't like to judge men in those cases. It's very easy to be in Washington or Phnom Penh or London and say, imagine if you were an Afghan and suddenly you had access to $20 million. And yeah. you, had an ex you know, who's this, to this... say who wouldn't steal the money? Right. Well, yes and no. I mean, Hamid Karzai, I thought, did a fairly competent job, but his brother was renowned for being involved in the international narcotics trade. And right. Right. that, for a man and a family in that position, that's not right, regardless of how right. poor you are. Right. And they're not and poor. And th that's, that's the point. Well, that, that's the point I'm getting at, is that is that I don't, there aren't enough competent yep. leaders there right now. And that that's where it's at a very dangerous place again. I, I, when I was over there in 2005, I worked with a general named Muhammad Daoud Daoud, who was a Taji, and Daoud Daoud had been the personal bodyguard of Masood, Ahmed Shah Masood, the great North Lions, the modern day hero, essentially, of Afghanistan. Sure, he ran, the Taliban. he ran the Northern Alliance. He was the one who took the fight to them. He controlled the northeast of the country, which the Taliban could never get control of, partly because of the resilience of the Tajiks, but also because it's just a one hell of a natural, fortified, rugged, mountainous area. You can't get in there over those mountains. And that always protected them somewhat until he was assassinated uh, shortly before 9-11. I personally believe the two were linked. And I'm finding it interesting at the moment because his son, who bears the same name, is now heading up the Panjshir resistance. And he has warned the Taliban that unless they negotiate, the war will be back on. Right, right. And that's the cyclical nature of conflict in Afghanistan. The general who I worked with, you know, you meet these charismatic people in Afghanistan who are fighters, who are warlords, who are military men, who are guerrilla fighters. This fellow, Mohammed Daoud Daoud, he worked with the Northern Alliance and he was the general in charge of the siege at Kunduz, which right. really ended the Talib's stranglehold on the country. It was really the last major battle. Uh, it was towards the end of, I think, November 2000 and 
2001. He went on to be a respected fellow who the West was able to work with. He was brought in to run the Ministry of Interior's counter-narcotics effort. And I remember meeting him and thinking, God, this is a charismatic character. He's got this sort of great hawk nose. Hmm. He's got this movement that he does. His presence is such that he would first lift his eyebrows, then his head, then his actual eyes at you. And it was this three-move thing that he did that was spectacular. And you thought, God, he zeroed in his focus on me right now. I've got this major player in Afghanistan. I'm working with him, giving him some advice, strategic communications advice on how to try and communicate with the West, with Washington, with the Western military. I knew that he knew how to talk to the Afghans. I knew that he was a very sophisticated person, but I was trying to advise him that way. But he, he was also such a smart guy that we occasionally, I'd done a lot of work in the Muslim world. And occasionally we could get to deeper, more interesting topics than just what the strategy was. And it, those topics were sometimes the nature of man. But I also had the fortunate experience of at one point having a Muslim girlfriend from Azerbaijan, and I learned a bit of Islam from a woman, which I think is a great way to actually learn a religion, not from a book, uh, but living in a country, and especially sometimes uh, living with someone intimately and, and learning about their faith. And she was this woman who was a pretty secular character, not a big Muslim, but um, would kind of give me nuggets of things from the Quran. And one of the most interesting ones was this idea from the Prophet Muhammad that man is not necessarily evil. He isn't really born in sin. You and I are Irish Catholics, right? And there's that, a bit of that idea of original sin. Well, Islam, it's not necessarily you're born in sin, but that man is forgetful and that you need to be reminded and you need to remind yourself five times a day of how to keep on the straight and narrow, right? Well, that's I'm for, not sure I'm, that's I'm, for I'm some. I'm not sure I'm really with that. You know, <laughs> yeah, no. but to each his own, as they say, right? Indeed, no, that's uh, that's for some people, but uh, certainly a lot of people, obviously in the Middle East, but around the world, do adhere to these practices, and that's all well and right. good. Uh, it's the lack of respect for other so, religions that is the big issue, and that will be something that people will be monitoring the Taliban for. They've never been tolerant of uh, other religions, and they've been their behaviour towards the. Uh, Hazaras, who are uh, Shiite, as opposed to being a Sunni Muslim, and with the Taliban, in addition, there are also tendencies towards Wahhabism, which was uh, Osama bin Laden's take on Islam. But I think people will be watching this quite closely. The Taliban are going to want international recognition, and I don't think there'll be too many countries out there who will be putting their hands up and supporting them. The obvious exceptions will be uh, Pakistan and quite possibly China. Right, right. And now, and then this is interesting, bringing, you know, the Talibs come right back into this. And Mohammed Daoud, Daoud the general who I work with, sure. there he was, head of counter-narcotics. We were talking about Islam. I brought up this quote. He looked at me and he just smiled and he said, who told you this? <laughs> and he laughed. And he said, because this is the good way to think about man, you know. And he was just, he was a, there was a sweetness to the man, but he was also a very tough character. And he was tasked in 2010 to go up north to Takar province, where he was put as the governor because the Talibs were on a major offensive. And he was actually, he was assassinated by the Taliban about two and a half weeks after Osama bin Laden was killed by us in May 2011. He'd been able to avoid being killed. He was a ramrod, straight, tough, but funny, 
you know, sparkling his eye guy. There Sometimes there were allegations that he had dirty drug money on him too. But I, I think that anybody in Afghanistan who had much power, there were some allegations of that. And the West always tended to trust the man. Those allegations tended to come from within Afghanistan, which made us think that they were plants. But he was blown up. He was blown up. Uh, the head of ISAF at the time was a German general who got injured. A couple of his officers got killed. Some Talibs slipped in, dressed as Afghan military. It was a suicide bomb. And uh, God rest his soul, General Mohammed Daoud, Daoud uh, died right there in the, in the explosion. And that, that was Taliban who did it. And they quickly came out thereafter and took credit for it. But that's where the country is right now. We've gone back to, you know, men who are going to step forward and try and slow down the chaos. And it's we're going to be back at war here, you know. Indeed. I was just going to add quickly that uh, Daoud, Daoud died in much the same circumstances as Ahmad Shah Massoud, who... Uh, the jury is still out on this, but uh, it was either Taliban or Al-Qaeda assassins dressed up as uh, reporters who went in and blew up Ahmed Samasud with the bomb hidden inside the television camera. That's right. And it was uh, two days before September 9th, uh, just before 9-11. And I remember seeing that as a BBC headline and... I was in Queens, and like I say, I was getting ready to go to Indonesia on a U.S. Fulbright, which is a research grant. I was a journalist, and I was going to go look at the media, how Indonesia's television, papers, journalism was evolving in the wake of the fall of General Suharto, who ran the country for 32 years. Suharto fell in 1998. They'd had free press for about three years, and I was going to go. I had all these great contacts there. I'd studied some Indonesian. My dear old colleague, anthropologist Johnny McDougall, uh, his father had done work there, so I had these great contacts, and I was going to leave New York City on September 13th. However, those flights were canceled, and I quickly, uh, with the encouragement of the U.S. government who wanted me to study Suharto, they said, well, actually, let's just shift the focus and have you look at how the world's largest Muslim country is digesting, processing, discussing, reporting on 9-11. So that shows you right there how quickly the world changed. I think people forget these things, that kind of the end of the Cold War to the late 90s, there was a period of great hope. Uh, democracy was taking root in lots of countries. Uh, it was a time of... Uh, the outlook was, I wouldn't say rosy, but the outlook was pretty good. Uh, other countries like uh, Cambodia were also emerging from being a failed status country. And then it all changed with an enormous bang in 9-11. And that just shifted the dynamics enormously. And I can't help but think that we're again witnessing this great shift with the rise of China the evacuation of the Americans from Afghanistan. I think we're going to be seeing enormous redeployments around the region and how the Democrats confront the problems of the world now that they're in office. Uh, there is talk that Joe Biden is keen to reopen forward deployment bases in Tajikistan. Uh, he'd like one in Uzbekistan and even Turkmenistan, but I doubt that will happen. What are your thoughts on the coming two, three, four years? How do you think it will shape up? As they say, the soft underbelly of Russia 
all those former Soviet states that are north of Afghanistan, north of Iran, the border between China and Russia. It brings us back into almost a Cold War mindset. The United States, it's a big country, and it views the world through these prisms of how to fight big wars against big countries. You know, it's what we did in World War II, and the U.S. military grew up that way, looking for big adversaries. I used to say, I think you and I used to joke at the Hong Kong Foreign Correspondence Club many years ago, I used to say that the United States may have lost Vietnam, but it won the Cold War. So it won a battle within this larger battle, right? The United States didn't really know what to do in Afghanistan. It's a guerrilla war to the 10th power. Who do you fight? What do you fight? The enemy melts away immediately. You go up over the Hindu Kush mountains, the soil crumbles in your hands, the Afghans with their beards and their henna, and their, their coal on their eyes. Sometimes they've got an old Anfield rifle they're proud of because they threw the British out. I mean, you've got this wild group of characters that revel in their image of just bandits. And the world's focus has been on this country in some, some way, shape, or form since the late 70s when the Soviets invaded it. And it did them no good. It was a destabilizing piece of their empire. It was a big piece in the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was their mistake made in Afghanistan. And I think that Biden is, you know, he's going to scramble a bit here and people are pointing their finger at him. Washington, I think, needs to spend time looking in the mirror itself and saying, why were we so seduced by Osama bin Laden to go fight his network? Well, he did that. We dismantled his al-Qaeda network. But we didn't ever figure out what to do in Afghanistan. And it raises the larger point of like, is this that clash of civilizations that was discussed 20 years ago? that the West thinks so differently than most Afghans. You know, it's, it's really wonderful to educate girls and pull women out from behind the walls, but there's, a, there's an expression that I learned in Turkey some years ago, and I know that this program is, uh, is family friend, friendly, yep. so I'll ask people to use their imaginations on this expression, but it's don't bring new S-H-I dot. Don't bring new shit to an old village. Don't bring new shit to an old village, which is hard to digest when when you're from the West and the idea, if it's new, it's true. And we think we're trying to improve things. And you go to these places that are so poor in the world and anything that's from the outside is threatening. And Afghanistan proved that things from the outside are threatening. Having your women emancipated and having them on TV reporting news is threatening. Let's go kill Afghan women reporters. Having, you know, having minorities more represented in the parliament, Hazaras and whatnot, that's threatening. Let's try and intimidate the Hazaras. So it's a real crisis. And as bin Laden showed, terrorism can be exported all around the world. So when you've got a destabilized, a rogue state, you know, very difficult, dirty people go in and take advantage of it and then export evil all around the world. And I think Biden's question is, you know, what's the strategy to try and make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become ISIS 2.0? How do we make sure that the next evil operation doesn't plant its seeds there? The seeds are all over the place. How, how can we make sure that it's not the next platform that evil springs off, you know? Right. Now, going a fair way back, I think it was Jimmy Carter who was, uh, when he was president, was looking at an absolute disengagement from Pakistan. That changed when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and occupied for the next 10 years. And the Western alliances would use Pakistan 
as a step into that country. Now, the Pakistanis have backed the Taliban, and there's an additional argument that Pakistan would rather see the Pashto fighting a civil war and occupying and controlling Afghanistan, because if they don't, they could wind up with a civil war in their own country. Now, it's all turned back. The Taliban are in power. Well, they're occupying the seat of power. I doubt that'll be recognised. Where does that leave Pakistan? This is what Pakistan wants. Its chief ally is China. Had the West trusted Pakistan too much? Was all the double dealing, the backslapping, the knifings in the back, uh, was it all too much? I mean, did the West trust Pakistan too much? And how would you deal with Islamabad in the current context and in the few years ahead? I recall, it was, I think it was three years ago, I was at the Pakistani embassy in Washington for Pakistani Military Day. And there were a number of attaches there, U.S. attaches there. Uh, there was a former State Department official who had been accused of spying for the Pakistanis by the CIA, I believe. You know, it was one of these rooms full of people where there were so many secrets in that room. Yep. It was a function where there was no liquor. And most of the time in Washington, D.C., there tends to be a lot of liquor at these functions, and people tend to get a little bit loose-lipped at times. Uh, but in this in this occasion, I thought it's, <laughs> it's probably good that there's no liquor here at this function because these people all know each other's secrets, and they all know where each other's bodies are buried, and nobody really trusts anybody at this point. That's a big problem for the future of the world, isn't it? That the United States, maybe they trusted, maybe Washington trusted Islamabad too much over the last 25, 30 years. For a while, and this really started back before Trump, when Barack Obama was president, the Pentagon was really working on this idea of AFPAC. And they tended to clump a lot of what was going on in Afghanistan to Waziristan and the border regions, uh, the tribal territories where there really is no border. There's no border up there other than just on the maps that were drawn by the British Empire 120 years ago. Sure. So I think that you're right, that Pakistan has got its, its issues with its tribes and People who live, you've been to these places and I've been to these places. I remember going into some villages where all the elders would come out and see you and the younger men and nobody even had on any shoes other than basically sandals, you know, sandals and shoeless men and hands the size of shovels because all they did was manual labor. And maybe there was some sort of a rudimentary phone system in the village. And maybe, maybe one out of 10 villages, some sort of internet link if the U.S. military had been through there and established one for them. But sometimes it's unimaginable for us to still recall that this is how a large part of this, these countries live, you know? Right, yeah. I remember the line shortly after 9-11, one of the um, more important American politicians came out and said, we're going to bomb Afghanistan back into the Stone Age. And it was pointed out by many of people that Afghanistan is still in the Stone Age. And I think that's largely a legacy of what happened after World War II. You go yeah. back and what survives of uh, Afghan cultural life in the 1920s and 30s, it was quite a sophisticated and vibrant society, particularly in Kabul. It's a lot different once right. you get out into the villages, of course. And as a result of that, you get this legacy of people that take pride in some sense. Everybody takes pride in their own place, right? And mm -hmm. if you come from a place that's considered to be so tough that it can get rid of the British Empire, the Russians, 
the Soviets and now the U.S., you know, it emboldens them in some way, the young men, to be even more difficult to deal with. Yep. I recall dealing with some North Vietnamese in some work that I did in Southeast Asia, and they would just laugh at me because I was an American. And, you know, I realized after a few days that few of them had had fathers who fought against the U.S., and they appreciated the U.S. as an adversary, but they could laugh at, it, at me because, you know, we beat America, ha, ha, ha. You know, <laughs> I thought, what am I going to say to that? They're right. These sorts of intellectual discourses are uh, they're impossible to have with people who are true believers and um, simply take it as read what they've been told. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, in Afghanistan, that there was a toughness, though, that was undeniable. And I remember dealing with special forces people and they would tell you, man, we have got incredible technology and training. And we've got really tough guys. It just takes one of those country guys out there who's willing to sit around somewhere under a rock for as long as it takes, in the rain, in the cold, with bugs on his face, and he'll do it because these guys are just really, really tough. And one day, this is an interesting story, 2005 it was, we're on this Afghan army shooting range, and a little man starts to walk towards us. And the guy who we're shooting with says, oh my God, I think I know this guy, watch this. And this little figure comes up. He's in an Afghan army uniform. He asks if he can take a shot. Immediately there, amongst a few other Americans, there's nervousness that, oh, an Afghan's got a weapon. But the special operator's like, no, I've dealt with this guy before. The guy's given an MP3 rifle. He leans down. He adjusts himself. The Americans, other people are just squirting off 10, 15 rounds of bullet. Right? They're just squirting off the bullets. Because we have no concept that we run out of ammunition. Well, this Hazara, he gets himself down in the dust and he positions himself and it takes about a minute. And after the second minute, I think, does he even know how to shoot? Then suddenly he puts his finger on the trigger, squeezes it, just one bullet goes out. We walk up to the target, bullseye. He hands the gun back to the special operator, nods, smiles, says, thank you very much. Somewhere somebody taught this guy how to shoot. And they taught him to, to take so much time that all he needs is one shoot to, to do a bullseye, whereas the Americans, they're squeezing off all these rounds of ammunition and uh, hitting far less. <laughs> when you look back at Afghanistan in the 1990s and it was a failed state, one can't help but think we're heading back in that direction. Now, in those days, there was very little communications with the outside world. Those that were in there, it was very much a promised land for NGOs, for the charities, for the people who are getting in there and trying to do things on the ground and dodge the Taliban and any other kind of authority while they were doing that. That could be installing sewage pipes, it could be running water, it could be getting health services to women in need, that kind of thing. Are we going to go back, those sorts of operations? When I was working in Afghanistan in 2005, I jokingly talked to a general about the need for a graffiti campaign in Kabul, and the graffiti would be done in, in local language, Pashtun, uh, and the graffiti would say, support the Americans now because the Chinese are coming next. Well, yeah, that may have been a little too fortuitous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think that a couple things in the world have changed since then, and one is drone technology. Yes. And you're going to see, you know, much more drone warfare over the skies, people snooping on each other more. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese, I think, will step in and try and prop it up in some way, potentially through Pakistan. This is their the Belt and Road initiative that they have. It seems to be faltering in places. But they've got money to spend, and they want to spend money in a place that where they can have some chaos. 
their place where they can where dirty things can happen. Well, it helps and, to define their borders. It helps to define where the troubled lands are, and that adds context to where the security and the safety of the Middle Kingdom is, which is in their eyes Beijing. That's right, and you get that. You know, the, the dangers of China, I think it'll be drained of resources like the Soviets were or like the United States was if they make too much effort, uh, because that's what Afghanistan does to countries that try, come in and try and treat it logically. There'll be other countries, too, who will totally oppose this. The obvious one is India. The uh, Pakistani generals have long coveted that northern area, which Ahmed, uh, Shah Massoud and now his son is... Uh, traditionally been in control of the land of the Tajiks in Afghanistan. One of the reasons why is because Pakistan is basically a narrow strip of land heading north-south. And if they want to aim ballistic missiles at India, they've effectively got to fire them straight up and straight down. And there's always a good chance it'll land in Pakistan territory. So they need what they call uh, strategic depth. And the idea is that if uh, the Pakistanis and they uh, certainly have their missiles trained on India that to get full effect and to look after themselves, that they fire them at a more friendly trajectory, and you do that from inside Afghanistan in the north. Uh, China has a similar policy with India when it comes to Tibet. It controls the high ground, and I think there's going to be a lot of movement in the strategic centres over what does this mean? Where are we going? That's right, and it also there's this... Proxy wars are things that are always going on. They ebb and flow in their intensities. And one thing that bends out of proxy wars is people who meet each other and know each other. And you and I have worked in a number of countries together, and you build bonds with people in countries that are in desperate places, that are in war, that are very deep and strong, and you trust them. And good men and women who do that are out there fighting the good fight in the world. And I would say that bad men are out there, bad women, men and women are also doing the same thing. And they've met in places like Afghanistan, in places like northern Iraq or Syria in the last 10 and 15 years. Years ago, I used to talk about how Cuba and certain intelligence agencies using Cuba down there to try and go after Castro and the people that met in Cuba. Well, these people years later were implicated potentially in assassinating John F. Kennedy. That's a bit of a conspiracy. Some of these people were used to break into the the Watergate and during the 1972 Democratic Convention that then ended up in the resignation of Richard Nixon. You know, Afghanistan is still a country that you could slip in and out of without passports. They, and that's going to be the, the future of Afghanistan for the unforeseeable future. The, they do uh, show up in all sorts of places. I happen to be the first in line for the anthrax shot before the invasion of Iraq. And uh, the fourth or fifth person behind me also in line for the anthrax shot was Oliver North, you know, and uh, <laughs> they, uh, after the Iran-Contra affair and all the allegations of uh, that came with South America from narcotics to gun running, and here he was. And I'm not sure if the world is a small place or if there's just very few people playing that game in it, you know. That's a great point. Is it just a few thousand people running the world, and they tend to run in a few circles? Uh, some of the guys that I worked with in Afghanistan, one of the things that we were working on when we were working on counter narcotics, which was opium, was trying to plug in the Colombians, who some Americans had worked with in their fight against Pablo Escobar and cocaine. So it was similar, and that you know you get these instability points around the world of narcotics, weapons, and illicit money flows, and how many people really 
know this dirty stuff and how dirty it is and will kill people over it and how many people know how to fight it. At the end of the day, there aren't that many that know either, right? Indeed. I do think they could take a closer look at what happened in Southeast Asia following 9-11. There were a lot of attacks. Gemma yeah. Islamia, yeah. commonly known as JI, they thrived. But in the end, they were dismantled and a lot of them were assassinated. Those that weren't were put in jail and... The term I do not like is war on terror, but there does seem to have been a lot of success with that over the years. And somehow I can't help but think a lot of that good work is going to be undone by what's happening in Afghanistan now. I agree with that. Yeah. And on that note, I'm just going to say a very quick thank you, Dan Boylan. It's been a lot of fun talking to you again. You too, Luke. As always. Love you, brother. All right. All the best. Thanks, Dan.